Okay, there we go. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining. Happy New Year. Um, it's my privilege to, um, to introduce our speaker for today. He is the Associate Professor at Clayton State University in Atlanta and also a research associate at Cambridge Center for Social Innovation. And <laughs> if that's not enough, he's also the author of a really, really, really pioneering book that hopefully we'll get to talk about uh, called African, Amer let me not, let me get, no, not get that wrong. African-American Afri Management um, History. And it's a really, really good book. And I think it talks about um, some of the examples of African-Americans uh, um, in, so like, I don't know if everyone's seen um, a Netflix series on Madame uh, C. Walker, no? C.J. Walker. C.J. Walker, exactly. And then there's also um, um, another example that he has in his book, but hopefully he will um, explain a bit of, more about that in the conversation. But yeah, so uh, without any further ado, um, I just wanted to give a little bit of background of how we're going to run today and the kind of the context of today. So as you probably know, in the UK, there are less than 10% um, of professors who are, who are Black or African Caribbean. And in America, I think it's slightly different. But um, in the UK, we're trying to change a narrative around um, who can attend university and who, and also there the narrative around black men and achievement and there's no one better in my opinion who can um, let us know and show us his journey into black excellence and academia so without further ado i'd like to introduce leon how are you well, sir? thanks for that thanks for that warm um introduction richard you know it's such a pleasure to have this conversation with you all today you know to talk about uh, my journey, and I'm looking forward to hearing about your journey as well um, in your careers. And hopefully, some of you all are considering academia. And um, but as Richard um, implied, you know there are certain challenges faced by people of African descent in this academic journey, be it in the United Kingdom. And we all heard the percentage that Richard just outlined: less than ten percent. And in the United States, um, you know, um, the percentage is not that great as well, especially in business academia. So there's a shortage of um, black business professors in the United States, you know, so um, or unrepresentation of um, black business professors, you know, so it's a it's an issue, but um, there are ways to you know, to challenge it and for us to achieve success within academia. Yeah, and I, I guess um, what one of the questions though is, did you always want to go into academia or were you always, um, was it something that you considered from a young age or was it something that you kind of fell into, so to speak? I would say more the, more the latter. Um, I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, specifically um, on the island of Trinidad. And unfortunately, I didn't really have uh, anyone really um, in my family who attended university. You know, so um, I would see 
very few images of black success on television. I guess Different World was one of the first TV shows I looked at and I saw um, black university students in the United States. But, um, but thankfully though, I had an aunt and uncle who resided in the US who um, told me about the opportunities within the US and getting a, a college degree. But, um, but I didn't really have much guidance back home. So after secondary school, after I did my O-levels and A-levels, I worked at an oil company for a couple of years. And during that time, I applied for a transfer within another department. I started off working security at this oil company. Okay. And um, so I applied for a transfer to work in health and safety. And my boss was not pleased at that when I got the offer. So he blocked my transfer and then he stopped scheduling me. He stopped um, putting me on the roster to work. So I was effectively out of a job because I was trying to advance myself. Oh, wow. So I was like, oh my goodness, you know, um, I don't really have anything to fall back on. I don't have a degree or anything. So based on that difficult life situation, I really put my head down in the books, studied the SATs, and I, um, I received a full scholarship at a historically black college in the United States known as Claflin University. And it's a really special experience attending a HBCU, a historically black college, because you get to learn about your African identity. And believe it or not, whether you're from the UK or the Caribbean or the continent of Africa, there's a lot that can be learned at some of these historically black colleges in the US. For example, Kwame Nkrumah, the first um, was a president, the first president of um, Ghana. He attended Lincoln University and he learned a lot about African history attending a HBCU in America versus what he learned in Ghana about his African identity. You know, so so th that was a good spark that was needed in my um, academic career. It really got me in tune with social justice and all these things. And um, I studied business. And uh, during that time, you know, I was taking these classes, um, even though I learned a lot about African-American history and black history in general, um, I didn't really see much representation in some of the, the business management books that we were studying in class. So I was like, you know what, if I ever do enter academia, I'm going to try my best to delve deep into Africana history and integrate that within entrepreneurship and business in general so students can see images of success people that look like them who achieved success in the past you know so um well, at that time i decided you know what um i will pursue an mba and then if the opportunity presents itself i will pursue a phd and thankfully um, those opportunities open up for me to pursue um, graduate degrees and here i am today um teaching at a predominantly black college in the U.S. known as Clayton State University, and the rest has been history. Yeah, and it's been fantastic, but I just wanted to take a, st a step back. So, you know how when you said you were doing your, so you did an MBA, and then I guess for those, so you were in Atlanta already, but then did you go to, did you go to, um, 
did you do your PhD in the South as well? I did all my schooling in the South. My undergrad was in South Carolina. My MBA was um, in a town known as Statesboro, Georgia. It was very different from the environment I experienced during my undergrad. So going from an HBCU to a predominantly um, white college in Statesboro, Georgia, which is pretty much in the country, it was an eye-opening experience. I experienced some um, racism and things of that nature there that really shook me to the core, you know. And um, but my experience is no different from many other people of African descent who lived in sm small towns in the southern United States, you know. And and how did so people that was a, a really bad experience? Go how ahead. Did, how did they take to your um to your research? So. Um, for those who don't know, what, 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 what was your topic for your PhD? Oh, for my PhD, I looked at um, college students. Basically, I studied um, African-American and Hispanic uh, undergraduate students, and I tried to determine their intentions to become social entrepreneurs. I wanted to see if minority students had that passion to start these enterprises that's going to make a difference within their communities and also make a profit at the same time. But I found that um, the social entrepreneurial intentions among minority students were not high. And I hypothesize that it's probably because they lack access to capital and maybe training the knowledge, skills, and abilities to become social entrepreneurs, social innovators within their community. So access to capital is such a big issue facing people of African descent, um, Latino um, entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs in the United States and also in the United Kingdom as well. It's a, it's a huge challenge. Yeah. And so was that at the, so once you did your PhD, was that the point where you're like, okay, I definitely want to go into academia and teach this to different communities or to your own community? My goal was to work for a historically black college or university. Um, most people tend to be against that. A lot of black academics um, usually get nudged to, work at predominantly white institutions, but it was always my goal to go back to a black institution because I got my first opportunity in academia at an historically black college. And I felt it was necessary to do the same. So I was offered an opportunity to teach at a school known as Savannah State University, which is a historically black college in Savannah, Georgia. And I worked there for, um, for two years then I took my current role at Clayton State University, which is a predominantly black college um, near Atlanta. And um, so it's a great experience teaching students, uh, minority students, not just African-Americans, but um, Latino and um, some Asian students as well. We have a lot of um, Vietnamese people within the Atlanta area. So a number of uh, minority groups, but mostly African-Americans, um, tend to be students at my class. And they are usually um, surprised to see um, 
some of the topics that I mentioned in class um, not covered in the textbooks, you know. So sometimes I go beyond the textbooks because a lot of things are missing in the textbook. You know, it, it comes like that book that was written years ago called The Miseducation of the Negro. You know, so there's been a lot of miseducation happening, especially within our communities. And I just try to do my part, along with others, the other people doing it as well, to try to um, educate students about people that look like them, who contributed in meaningful ways within um, the field of business in general. Brilliant. So I just, just a quick note to everyone. If everyone can put their... Um microphones on mute because i think there's a bit of feedback on the um on the line but um i just wondered so so like i said i went when, when i visited clayton last year i think it, there is something empowering knowing that you are being in an environment where you're welcome you know i i, I was so excited i was like this doesn't happen in the uk where 90 percent of the students are black i was just so excited i think you saw my face i was just so 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 excited but what do you think the the difference is when they see people like yourselves um, teaching them and also teaching them about entrepreneurship. Well, they see someone who they can relate with, you know, and, um, and I always share my story. I believe that storytelling is a critical part of what we can do as academics of African descent, you know, and, and within the Africana community, storytelling is an integral part of who we are as Africans. African people, you know, that's a critical part. So I always have to tell my story first and foremost, you know, um, I came from a blue collar background. My family were not um, into, um, well, no one really attended universities and things like that. And many of my students, they are first generation um, university students, you know, so they're the first ones in their family. So I tried to connect with them um, on that facet of our um, common experience. And then, you know, I also talk to them about the challenges that we face. You know, I don't sugarcoat anything. You know, I attended white universities for graduate school and I've faced racism inside the classroom and outside the classroom based on professors not liking me because of who I am and what I represented and not giving me the grades I deserved. I experienced all those things. And there were times I had to fight um, to get the, the grades and the justice I deserved in the classroom, you know? So, so I am keenly aware of some of the challenges students of African descent experience in the classroom and also outside the classroom. And I bring those stories as well. But there is something we can learn about as it relates to the disadvantages and the prejudice that we may face. You know, um, a byproduct of that is the grit we develop as individuals and we learn how to um, face some of those challenges head on. You know, I don't believe in retreating from those challenges. Mm -hmm. um, in life, we have to face a lot of uncomfortable choices. So I teach my students, you know, um, get comfortable at being uncomfortable. And it may involve an uncomfortable conversation with someone who's trying to derail you, you know? So I share with them my experiences dealing with those things. And they share with me their experiences as well. 
and we try to grow from those conversations and also tell them that education is not just a one-way process it's not me depositing information in your head it's a two-way type of thing you know i'm learning from you you're learning from me and i try to make them a central part of the educational process fantastic and i just wanted to if you uh, so you just you released your book last year no two years ago actually and i was just wondering if you could give a flavor of some of the inspirational examples of entrepreneurs from across Africa and Carib- and the Caribbean because I, that's what I loved about your your book it's not just we are African or we are Caribbean but more so we have a joint narrative and we have similar words um, th- for different things oh yes you know so my book is called African-American Management History Sites on gaining a cooperative advantage and um one thing i stressed on the book is philosophies on the continent that um survived the middle passage you know so um you know so as i mentioned you know i'm born and raised in trinidad and tobago but we do have a lot of African traditions that we do practice in Trinidad that is also simultaneously practiced on the continent of Africa. For example, I grew up um, taking part in a susu. I'm not sure if any one of you all are familiar with um, a susu, but um, it's pretty much like a revolving credit um, savings association. And it's quite popular still in Ghana and Nigeria. But growing up, I always thought it was a Trinidadian thing. Lo and behold, I, um, I eventually found out it's an African thing, you know? So we do it in Trinidad. We do it in Jamaica. They call it partner in Jamaica. They call it Boxhan in Guyana, you know, Isusu in um, some parts of West Africa and Susu in Ghana, you know? And um, in Kenya, they call it Chama. You know, so we all have these similar practices. We all have these beliefs um, that revolves around cooperation. So Susu is just a manifestation of a philosophy of cooperation that permeates the continent of Africa. And during slavery, a lot of our philosophies and traditions, they survived the Middle Passage and made its way into the Americas. You know, so the purpose of my book was to show that um, there's an integral part of African history and philosophy that permeates even the way we do business. You know, we do not, um, historically, we subscribe more to a communitarian approach to entrepreneurship versus an individualistic approach, you know, which is so common within the Anglo-Saxon world, within the European world, you know, that whole Protestant work ethic and rugged individualism, you know. Um, Our history is different as people of African descent, you know. So a lot of us subscribe to a more communitarian, cooperative approach, that philosophy of cooperation. And they have different names, you know, in in, um, South Africa, it's known as Ubuntu, which means I am because we are, you know, and we know these sayings like it takes a village 
and then there are other philosophies within Africa, like Umuganda, which is a philosophy in um, Rwanda, you know, and um, it basically incorporates people working together on a common goal. In Trinidad, we have something called Gayap, which means lend a hand. If I have a neighbor who's building his home, um, I would help alongside other neighbors as well for no money. That's just the African way, traditionally, you know. So that um, African philosophy of cooperation permeates many people of the diaspora and on the continent. And I feel as if we need to go back to some of these old traditions instead of adopting traditions that were foreign to us. Yeah. That's brilliant. So I have one more question before I open it up to anyone who wants to answer, uh, to ask any questions. Um, so um, for those who don't know, he, um, I think you're teaching this year at, uh, at Exeter. Um, some, some, some of some of some of your um, some of this African African American also African philosophies of business, um, and I think it's I think it's pioneering. I think it's one of the few universities that are doing it. But I guess coming from the UK, do you think there's still a long way in terms of embracing this? this ideas and our history in business, in business schools in, in particular? Yes, so um, so Exeter, um, a professor there reached out to me and said, you know, you'd like to integrate some um, African, Africana histories and philosophies within a class he constructed known as History of Black Entrepreneurship. So he, he's um, using my book, as well as others as well, to talk about the Africana experience within the UK, within the US, within the continent as well. And um, I, I think schools are slowly but surely um, looking at new approaches because business as usual, it's not working. It's not sustainable, you know? And, um, and I think we need to take uh, a look in the mirror and see ourselves for what we became because this post-pandemic society has to be different because we are seeing a lot of um, inequities, a lot of inequality, a lot of people um, suffering financially um, in the U.S. and across the pond in the U.K. as well and other parts of the world. Um, so there are things that need to change. And I think some people are realizing that there is opportunities that can be gained by decolonizing the curriculum and integrating different philosophies, not just Anglo-Saxon Eurocentric philosophies, but those that come from Africa, those some that come from India, China. You can decolonize utilizing a variety of um, approaches, but the approach I'm taking is an Africano approach and I think people are seeing value in doing so. So Exeter is um, doing it right now um, for the spring semester. Then um, Morehouse College, which is the, the brother school of um, Spelman College in Atlanta, they introduced a history of um, black entrepreneurship um, class as well. And my book is also on their curriculum as well. And hopefully we'll see more schools in the US and the UK and other parts of the world. Has there been resistance? Yes, 
there's some people, you know, who don't agree with what I'm doing. And there are some people who are critical. That's part of the territory. When you're in academia, you will face criticisms from people who are just happy with the status quo. And that's fine. You know, they, they are allowed to criticize, but I'm also allowed to continue doing what I'm doing mm. by spreading the gospel of um, Africana histories and philosophies being a central part of the business curriculum. So I, I said I had one more question. So can I ask one more question before I open up? One more, sure, one more sure. question. So um, uh, last year was a tough year for the in the US and it was a tough year in the UK. And um, a lot of organizations have kind of, I think you wrote about it and uh, you made a statement about it, um, like an article about it, about, um, in terms of a lot of organizations are saying that they want to help us or they empathize with Black Lives Matter. And I think we have a lot of people here who are from corporate, some who are in undergraduate and people in different industries. And so I guess, I think you, you nailed it on the head where you said some of them who make these statements, their organizations don't necessarily change. It's more like a PR. So I guess um, my question, even though it's a bit long, is what would you advise young black people who are on the call or young undergraduates, people who want to break ground, what would you advise them to, you know, what has inspired you to keep going and fight in the fight? <laughs> well, um, you raise a good point. Um, you know, a lot of these organizations, their statements ring hollow to a lot of us. You know, it's all performative, you know, so it's, uh, some people coined the term performative allyship, you know, so, um, but we are not, interested in their performances we are looking for authenticity you know in terms of um, how they're going to treat the employees of color how they're going to treat um, communities black and brown communities in which their business operates you know because we still see instances of environmental racism environmental injustices um, impacting communities of color, you know, in, in, in here in the United States and other parts of the world as well. So a lot of companies that just talk the talk and they don't walk the walk, you know, and um, right now myself and um, Dr. Simone Phipps, we are working on a paper right now to try to encourage companies to appoint social justice advocates to their board. Because a lot of these corporate boards, all they have is, you know, people who tend to have capitalistic leanings and that's it. But no one to really temper them. You know, they need people from um, different communities represented on the board. But we cannot stop just as that. We don't, we don't just want to put a black capitalist on the board who share the same mindset as their peers. Mm -hmm. We want people who are inclined to be focused on social justice, community development, sustainability on the board, who are also um, diverse, come from different walks of life, come from different ethnic groups, communities, ways of thinking, you know? So, um, so companies have to take a strong stance when it comes to truly getting the representation within their organizations and within their board as well. And it's important for us to agitate for that and to continue 
with those efforts. We cannot just listen to what they say. Say, yes, Black Lives Matter. We, we agree with you. We are your allies. We need to hold them accountable. So don't just take those empty words as the gospel truth. Mm. Let's hold them accountable. If you are very active on social media and, um, you know, definitely post about some of the things you would like to see companies do, you know, and a lot of these companies, they have chief diversity officers and chief community officers, um, well, people who are in charge of community outreach, reach out to those um, individuals and test and see if they are truly authentic in their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And I haven't done any scientific studies, but if there was a study done, I'm sure more than 50% are inauthentic. That's just my opinion. No, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I guess it's probably true. So, so, so I, on that note, I just wanted to thank you for answering my questions and I'm now going to open it up to the audience if they wanted to ask a question. So we've had, I've had two questions, but then if you want to answer a question, if you can just unmute your mic and then directly ask uh, Leon any questions. So the first two questions that I've received is, um, one second, let me see if I can read it. So the first question is, what do you attribute to the low numbers of African Caribbean people in academia? That comes from Dr. Pamela. I personally believe um, the gatekeepers in academia in the UK are comfortable with those numbers. Because we have a lot of people of African descent in the UK who have um, intentions to become academics, who have the motivation, who have the qualifications to work in academia. And um, so the gatekeepers, um, a lot of them, they perpetuate the myth that um, they're having a hard time filling these slots, filling these positions. And I hear it in the U.S. as well. I've had colleagues mention to me, oh, we have a hard time finding people of African descent for these positions. And I'm like, really, is that so? Because I know so many people who are qualified to work in academia who are not getting these opportunities. So I don't, I don't really understand what you're saying. You know, so some of the gatekeepers, they intentionally block us from attaining those positions in the so-called ivory tower. But it's important for us when we do make it as an academic um, to fight to serve on those job search committees like at my job i make it a point to always raise my hand and say i would like to serve on a committee to hire future candidates and i tend to advocate for the highly qualified candidates who usually look like me you know because once you're black we all know inherently that we have to work twice as hard to get half as much. So we tend to do a lot. We tend to go above and beyond. We tend to be supremely qualified. 
but just the opportunities tend to be few and fine between. You know, so when they place me on that committee, I am able to put forward the names of the very highly qualified black candidates that's on that list. And I'm proud to say on all of the search committees, most of them that I've served on, 99%, we tend to hire people of, um, from minority groups. Fantastic. Know? Fantastic. So I, um, does anyone have, um, so it's now open to any other questions. So does any, if you just unmute your mic, maybe introduce yourself as your name and then um, sh your short-ish question. I'll go first, because <laughs> I've got like 100 questions. Um, hey, Leon, Yvonne, I'm, I'm not sure if you remember me, but I'm on um, Paul and Neil's MST in Social Innovation. I'm a year behind Richard. He has, he has left the nest and left the rest of us there to suffer. So <laughs> yes, um, yes. I remember you, yes. I had a quick question about black entrepreneurship. Um, and you know, excuse the way that I'm going to frame this. I, I'm, I'm trying to get this right. I'm trying to understand why we need to study black entrepreneurship. Um, so when you read about black entrepreneurship, a lot of people talk about, you know, black people being entrepreneurs and their barriers to entrepreneurship. Whereas when I see black entrepreneurship, I, I feel like, well, hang on a second. Are there characteristics of black entrepreneurship that we should be looking at? Is there an approach or a perspective that is different the way that social entrepreneurship is different and what were those characteristics in your opinion what are those characteristics okay yeah that's a um it's a deep question but i will tackle it none, um, nonetheless um in terms of characteristics um i tend to approach things based on our shared history as africans and our philosophies and history, right? So um, so in the past, during the days of segregation in the United States, a famed scholar by the name of W.E.B. Du Bois, oh, yeah. he made a plea to people of African descent to form businesses by utilizing cooperative economics, which is in line with our shared history as Africans who believe in a more communitarian philosophy and way of life, right? So cooperative economics, you know, when you read the books about it, you will hear about um, this was created in Europe. It was a European form of business. Um, but in Africa, economic cooperation played a very central role. And Du Bois saw that. And he also observed the, the problems facing black communities throughout, you know, access to capital being one and lack of training to become entrepreneurs. So he saw cooperative economics and economic cooperation in general as an approach people of African descent can take to start businesses because they were not going to get loans from the white banks to start a business. That was a problem in the early 20th century, and it's still a problem today. So one form of entrepreneurship that might be um, groundbreaking for people of African descent is cooperative entrepreneurship. You know, how we can utilize 
our resources as a collective to start these businesses that could take care of our needs and fight for social justice causes that we are passionate about and also as a way to generate wealth right and um and a cooperative it can be a social enterprise you know so it's um so it could take many different forms and some tend to have a social entrepreneurial aspect to it as well but i believe this presents a uh an exciting opportunity for people of African descent. You know, we tend to be enamored with these stories of rugged individualism and it don't really work out for us the way it should, right? So maybe a more cooperative approach might be the approach. But there are some promising signs when it comes to black entrepreneurship, like here in the US, and I believe in the UK as well, um, black women, Tend, tend to be um, the ones who are really starting these businesses um, right now, you know? So we see a lot of entrepreneurial activity among black women, but unfortunately, a large number of those businesses fail within five years. So if we take a different business model by utilizing economic cooperation, we might have a higher rate of success. I believe the success rate within cooperatives is 60%, a 60% success rate, which is quite high. So maybe if we refocus and instead consider the cooperative business model as an approach for people of African descent. So we've just had another question from someone. Um, but I see uh, Frank's hand is up, so he'll be next. So you just had a question. What areas are in demand in academia for young people to study? So if someone's, I don't know, in their undergraduate or thinking, okay, what what topic is kind of hot in academia that kind of I can sort of build a career in? What kind of areas would you kind of suggest? Okay. Um... There's a short, well, here in the United States, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in the UK as well, there tends to be a shortage of um, business professors, be it in accounting, be it in finance, be it in management, be it in marketing, right? And um, so, they, well, here in the US, there's a critical shortage of people of African descent within the business fields. But... Um, so I may not be the best person to ask about other fields within academia in terms of underrepresentation, but I am sure it exists, right? And, and, um, but there tend to be a shortage of us in business, entrepreneur, um, engineering, and um, some of the technical fields as well, and some of the fields within STEM, right? And there are some universities that are going above and beyond and trying their best to solve that pipeline issue. So we are seeing more and more people of African descent within STEM fields, within science, technology, engineering, and math, you know? And um, so we're seeing more initiatives as it relates to that. And there are some initiatives as well here in the US that are trying to increase the amount of um, people of African descent to study business. So there's this organization known as a PhD project 
and their sole aim is to increase the number of Native Americans, um, Latinx um, Americans, and African Americans to the field of business. But um, if you are indeed considering academia, um, there are opportunities, but of course, you will always face gatekeepers who are trying to keep us out. You know, that's something I have to state. I'm not going to paint a rosy picture. You know, it's um, you face hurdles. But as someone who's thinking about academia, think about the ways you can be useful within your desired field, right? So the way I look at my life is like this. I think the purpose of my life is for me to be useful in some way to my students and my community. So think of the ways you can be useful. Maybe there's something about your background that can help you inform um, your future field within academia. Maybe you have an entrepreneurial background as a person of color navigating the obstacles that you face. Maybe you have a social justice background within your family or based on solely your background as well that you could bring to a different field, you know? So maybe your social justice background could fit well within the field of sustainability or engineering or business. Or maybe your passion is music, you know? So can you think of ways in which um, you can reduce barriers to entry for entrepreneurs within the music industry? Because we see an underrepresentation of um, people of African descent who are the major players within the music industry in terms of record label heads and things of that nature. You know, so let's think of ways in which you can be useful and where you can integrate your unique experiences and your knowledge and your skills. You know, so, um, so a lot of us may be passionate about various areas and we may be confused, but think of the ways that you can be useful and that may um, narrow it down a bit in terms of what you want to study in the future. I, th I, think, I think that's fantastic, making sure academia makes a difference, so being useful. So we've had, we've got three questions, so I think Frank was first, and then we'll go to Esther and then Albert. So um, Frank, do you want to unmute and ask your question? Right, um, can you hear me, sorry? Yes, we can hear, we can loud and clear. Okay. Uh, first, um, I want to express my sincere thanks for um, hosting this program and also um, what you do now is um, it's inspiring. I mean, I didn't join earlier on, but um, there are some good things that I'm hearing which also inspires me, has been a way of how I have been um, most times, of course, um, thinking about the way how we can make ourselves um, become useful to our society, whichever background that we have and that falls in line with most of the things that you are talking about here. Um, I just uh, wanted to um, just, of course, a little bit of supporting most of the things that you say over here, uh, the partnership and cooperation, which um, you said is quite uh, very good for few people, even if they are from different, different backgrounds, whatever skill that they have, if they can put together to form 
either a business group or also to form whatever group that they uh, can form in, in order to sort of proceed or as a platform to be able to uh, send their information or to be able to sort of um, either business or whatever they want to do. Um, some of um, the problems sometimes comes in when people especially, you know, don't want to sort of um, be um, um, fair and then um, also sort of, um, what should I say, um, be more sincere in their dealings, you know, even if it's cooperation, you know, or partnership. Because um, once it becomes that, then the trust usually of three or four people sort of forming a group um, becomes a bit difficult. And also, you know, at some point, one or three or any group, of course, there's going to be someone who will be dominant. But the sacrifice has to come from those who think, oh, we hold um, the higher esteem in this group. And therefore, that sacrifice also helps to bring other people on board, even if they contribute just a little bit. It helps them to also feel confident in the process and also um, to be able to work with the, the people, sort of uh, the partnership and contribute in. Um, I, I will just move a little bit away from, of course, the academia and go on to a program which I had recently, which um, was um, the, uh, we know COCO is, um, COCO was, was a program about the Ghanaian government and the Cote d'Ivoire government forming a cartel on COCO. You know, because we know that um, Ghana and cocoa, of course, uh, produce about 60% of the worst cocoa. And uh, currently, you know, there was a program on um, where, you know, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire form a partnership. And as you said, th th there are so many companies who have uh, resisted and against, and it, it has gone to a point where after establishing a framework of which they're going to uh, sort of um, help to alleviate poverty on farmers, not for themselves alone. You know, um, it, it's become, um, you know, something of uh, um, corporations uh, uh, sort of resisting and all sort of, you know, finding ways and means of, you know, trying to sort of uh, disorganize that. But it, it's something that, you know, the political will and also you have to have people in place whose vision um, to do that, even though no matter whatever resistance they will face, you know, at least will go to a length of, um, setting up those platforms, which future leaders or people who see that as a good thing will always going to um, support that, even if, you know, those people who initiated it happens to be a sort of, um, you know, okay. um, um, discontinue, you know. So, um, so I do support most of the things uh, that you're talking about in terms of cooperation and partnership in so, establishing um, either social justice or business or whatsoever. Okay. You know? Okay. So, well, I'll so, make... Sorry, yeah, I was just going to say, do you, do you, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Yes, um, and thank you for bringing that example from Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana with the um, cocoa industry. And we see yeah. exploitation from those corporations as it relates to the cocoa farmers. And some of them, they, they have cooperatives and um, farming cooperatives as well, but they still face tremendous challenges. And... Um, you know, so I was mentioning earlier, I'm working on a paper now trying to encourage corporate boards to at least appoint someone who's an advocate of cooperatives on the board because we are seeing exciting business models by some corporations in other parts of Africa. For example, there's this company known as Kate Speed. 
Okay. The fashion company. And they have created a cooperative with some artisans in Rwanda. And their goal is to empower that community okay. with a very decent salary and work. And it, it, it was a, a, an approach for them to um, help with their global supply chain, right? And they showed that they valued their supply chain. And they created that cooperative alongside those Rwandan women to empower them to um, serve Kate Spade and also other businesses as well. You know, so we need corporations to stop exploiting some of these farmers within Ghana and Ivory Coast because we all know um, people tend to point fingers and say, you know, child slavery is an issue, but they don't really look at themselves in the mirror and say the reason these farmers are hiring children from Mali is because they need to keep their um their costs down you know you know so um so we need governments so there's always a political um component to all these things so we need our governments be it in Ghana and Ivory Coast to try to apply some pressure on these corporations to empower their global supply chain so they could live a decent life and work for a decent salary because a lot of these farmers, they keep operating at a loss within the Ivory Coast and Ghana, especially now during this pandemic because some of their conditions are quite deplorable right now. But I'm thankful that you brought up this issue and it's something I pay attention to as well. Thank you, Frank, Frank, thank you, Frank. I think it's the next person is um, Auntie Esther. Would you like to ask your question? Okay, thank you. Um, thank you for your wonderful um, presentation. Um, I'm looking at it in terms of um, young people now. I actually work with young people um, and a number of them actually want to form their own business, which is really surprising in this, um, at this stage you know, in, in society. Um, and I know you've talked about the style of business in different countries, but the young people here in Britain that I meet um, as an advisor for them for going to university and so on, um, they want to do their own thing and they want to run their own business. They use a lot of social media. So they'll, they'll be doing that alongside their studies. Um, so this is a new thing for them and they tend to take on the model that they learn in school so the business but i don't know whether or not um you know they know much about um what other countries do like the, um, in africa caribbean how their style of business studies are, are put forward so so what i'm saying is that i'm seeing something new from these young people they're they've grown up with the business studies that they have here in in the uk they'll take it to university and you know they become entrepreneurs in their own in their own rights. Um, a lot of them do beats for music, and they share it, and they send it, and they get money for it, and so on. So there is like a new generation coming up who actually want to be involved in business, but I don't know how much is it, of it is self-generated, um, or actually they're working together, and so on. So I'm just wanting to to sort of put that forward for people to understand that there is a new generation of young people coming through who are looking to get into business because what the government has been doing here 
is actually introducing business in primary schools. So in their mind, they're thinking about that. But now this pandemic has occurred, it's quite amazing how things have been wiped out in that respect. But social media and selling and working or and being entrepreneurs on social media is actually the new norm for this generation. So that's that the comment I wanted to make and what your thoughts are about that um, in terms of um, what you're um, producing in the universities and so on. And the other thing is, I, you know, I'm quite amazed that within this community, the Asians are actually making headway in their business. And I haven't heard anything about that and their model of business. And if you've got anything to say on that, thank you. Thank you very okay. much. Yeah, thanks for your um, your comments and um. And I will start with what you just said as a latter first, and I'll try to work my way back because it's still fresh in my mind. You mentioned um, the Asian community. And um, the Asian community, they tend to adopt a very, very much co cooperative model. You know, they help each other out. Yes. Something that we are losing a grasp of within the African community, mm. you know? And, um, and the Asian community, they have different philosophies from their culture that they see fit to integrate within traditional business models. You know, so it almost became syncretized almost. For example, in India, there's the innovation that is being studied right now known as Jugad, Jugad innovation. It's a very low cost approach to innovation and social innovation. Right. And there are professors at Cambridge right now who are studying, who are pioneering studies in um, Jugad innovation. And it's a low cost way of innovating that we see all the time in India. So they are seeing fit to integrate their historic philosophies and models into traditional business practices. Why can't we do the same within the African community? be it in the UK, Caribbean, United States, wherever we are, you know? So it's very important for us to try to tap in to our own communitarian philosophies and also our own approaches as it relates to cutting costs in the innovation process. Like in Kenya, there's this um, form of business known as Juakali, which is another form of frugal innovation. So Jugad is a form of frugal innovation. Juakali is a form of frugal innovation in Kenya. You know, so we need to study some of our, our own techniques, our own traditions, our own philosophies, and see how it can fit into the so-called traditional business model in the UK, in the United States, in other parts of the world, and utilize it to get a piece of the pie. So you mentioned the young people. These young people, they're not being stopped by the gatekeepers. You know, they are coming up with innovative ways to, you know, to generate revenues. And I applaud them for their, um, for their initiative and their creativity. And we are seeing these young people doing amazing things, starting these um, enterprises based on social media and the figuring out business models and how to monetize those things. So there are things we can learn from young people as well, you know, that could inform us. 
you know. So, um, but here in the U.S., there's a greater push to integrate business studies at the lower levels in school. Where I'm from in Trinidad and other parts of the Caribbean, we are seeing more efforts to introduce entrepreneurship um, earlier in the curriculum. The government in Trinidad has launched an entrepreneurship competition for secondary school children. So we are all seeing that need, especially in this, um, hopefully, the post-pandemic society. I'm speaking that into existence. Hopefully, we'll be <laughs> in a post-pandemic society. Yeah. And we saw a lot of businesses being obliterated. So it's very important for us to try to conceptualize new business models that can survive this post-pandemic world. And we've seen formally established businesses just crumble, you know? So we just have to um, conceptualize these new forms of business that can survive. And I believe the future is always Africa. I'm very biased. I'm going to say that right here now. The future is always Africa. I believe in our philosophies and histories and our people. And I think we're going to forge a way forward if we really learn from how we did things, how our philosophies can help manifest into successful businesses. But it may involve us rejecting a more individualistic approach. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much. So, so we have one final question from Albert, if that's okay. Um, so would you like to answer your question? Yes, uh, thank you for the opportunity. I am uh, Dr. Alberto Sando, and I am based in Oklahoma. Uh, it's just, it's really not a question. However, I just wanted to throw in one or two comments uh, just to support what the speaker has said. Um, these are um, reflections on some of the questions uh, people ask. I usually tell people in general that um, it's not everybody who's been called to business, okay? It's just like um, how, um, it's not everybody is gonna be a soccer player. So um, to choose the kind of uh, path to take in business uh, has to be centered around what you know yourself is able to accomplish. You should know yourself. It is very important. Um, and like he rightly said, you can then spin it into different areas of your expertise or talent and stuff like that. Um, I also wanted to say um, here about black entrepreneurship, which is a great um, idea, is um, in my studies, um, I found out that, and we still do have that prevailing, about 3% of leaders in corporate America are blacks. And the research actually shows the reason why we have such a low number is not because of racial segregation. It's not because of that or discrimination. It is about African-Americans misunderstanding how to socialize their way in the leadership circles in order for them to be recognized and trusted because if, for instance, your boss plays golf and you are not interested in golf, or you don't belong to certain social clubs, your name is not going to come across the table, even though you may be working very well in your company. So there are a lot of things that um, in a curriculum for black entrepreneurship that we need to reconsider. 
because a socialization or socializing with America is a very critical piece. It's a very critical piece in career development and advancement. Um, um, and so I just wanted to throw that one out there. Um, another thing is the issue of access. Um, I just want to comment on that real quickly by saying that um, when you know, I lectured in you know, business, international business, strategic planning and stuff like that, that's my background. Um, and um, at a point I started consulting uh, with the small business administrat administration here in the United States. Um, and what I did was every year they gave me about 20 small businesses to mentor under a certain grant. So I helped them with business planning and you know, performance improvement, you know, these things to strengthen the small businesses in order to increase their output and uh, profitability. Um, I observed that the Indians, that is the Native Americans, have a lot of financing or they have a lot of support from their group. I'll give you an example, and I'm trying to be very brief. So um, the Cherokee Indian Nation here, I live in Oklahoma, we have the Cherokees and others. They have their own corporations. And when they apply for government grants or projects, they partner with the smaller businesses in order for them to get a stronger standing to secure government projects and financing. However, in the African-American community, there is no such structure, okay? So one of the things that we have to think about in future, which is tied to some of the cooperative models that um, our dear speaker was talking about is, how do we create institutions, African-American African institutions that will be willing to be the backbone or to stand in partnership with small businesses that are owned by African-Americans in order to nurture them and enable them to succeed. Uh, so this is something that um, black entrepreneurship at some point may have to consider or will be something that will be discussed directly or indirectly in such a subject like black entrepreneurship. Um, the last thing I would say, and um, I'll um, just move <laughs> on for the next speaker, a uh, person to speak uh, question is, um, there are a lot of young people, as Gen Z and other generations younger than that, who are interested in business because they have learned to be more Albert, socially. I, Albert, I'm, yes, really, I'm really sorry. We have to um, uh, close soon as, as, as because of the timing. But, um, I apologize. What, but but what, what we can do is um, I'm happy to take questions and I'm happy to um, kind of follow on the conversation. And um, what I'll do is I'll share our details. Um, so East London Connect, I'll share the details shortly. But I just, to respect um, the timing, I, I just we have to um, close there. Um, I just wanted to say thank you once again to everyone. Thank you for the opportunity. Yourself. Thank, Thank you, everyone, for um, for joining us uh, this evening and this afternoon for you, Leon. Thank you so much for taking so much of our time to to just share from your experiences, inspire us, and um, yeah, it's just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me to talk on this platform and for all of the um, people here today. I appreciate your time and your questions, and feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm on. 
Twitter and LinkedIn. Just type in Leon C. Prieto. And I'll just um, put it in the chat box. And I'll be happy to connect with you um, on those platforms. But again, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Leon. Um, so today's um, recording, will, I will um, edit the recording and make it available. But um, I, up until that point, is it possible? So I will type in the chat to everyone what our email address is so that you'll get so if you would like to listen to the recording or if you'd like to find out more about East London Connect, the email to, uh, to send an email to is contact at eastlondonconnect.org. And what we'll do is we'll make these the link to this um, talk and the previous talk available. And it will also be available from next week on Spotify and um, Apple Podcasts. So if you please send an email so that you can receive an update once, once we have the links and once we have the recording. Once again, I'd like to thank everyone